0: We're fascinated by people's last words. As a matter of fact, if you go to Google and type in famous people's last words, you'll get all sorts of hits uh, that will let you know what some well-known figures said right before they died. Why are we so interested in people's last words? Because we know that what a person says right before they die is what is foremost in their heart and mind. So it's interesting to see what people are thinking about, what their priorities are as they approach their appointment with death. Well, this morning in our text, we're going to see Paul's last words to some leaders of a church that he loved dearly. Now, he was not uh, about to die I- immediately, but he knew because God had revealed it to him that he would no longer see these folks that he loved face-to-face. Uh, he knew that hard times were coming, and so these are, th- these are his last words to that church, his last opportunity to impart uh, what he wanted to impart to these leaders and to that church. And so by studying these words, we see what's foremost in Paul's heart and his mind, and it's fascinating. So keeping that in mind, look with me in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 28, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. We are jumping in right to the middle of a message that Paul was sharing, again, with some church leaders from the church in Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is truth with no mixture of error. Now I'm grateful today for the word of God. How about you? Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The Bible says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not... You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray together this morning. Because of Jesus, Father, because of Jesus, we have pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. And we are so grateful. That because of the finished work of Christ, our sins have been washed away and we have been brought into a personal relationship with you, whereby we can call you Father. That is awesome. We are grateful for this relationship and we are grateful for this opportunity to come and gather and focus on who you are and what you've done for us. And now, Lord, as we study your word, I pray that you would move in our midst by your Spirit. I pray the Holy Spirit of God would anoint me as I preach and anoint the hearers as they listen that the word of God would grip our hearts that we would Lord be changed and transformed by your truth we love you and we want to live in a way that glorifies you and we need your help and so Lord help us in these moments we lift up this time to you and place it in your hands it's in Jesus name that we pray amen thank you you can be seated as we saw last week, we are following Paul on what scholars call his third missionary journey. During his third missionary journey, he spent over two years uh, with the Christians in the city of Ephesus, spent a great deal of time there, and the gospel reached in, uh, to all of Asia. And after a great riot in Ephesus, Paul left that city and journeyed into Macedonia and to Greece and spent some time there. But then he felt led by the Lord to begin to journey back toward uh, Jerusalem. He wanted to be back to that city by the Feast of Pentecost and do ministry there and meet with the believers there and the church leaders there. And so we find ourselves journeying with Paul on his way back to Jerusalem. Now, when he got near Ephesus, Paul decided not to stop in Ephesus. Uh, Again, he, he had a fond affection for the church there. They had a fond affection for him, and he knew if he stopped they would just insist that he stay. Come on, one more day, Paul. One more week. Just stay a little bit longer. And he would have a hard time getting away from them, getting to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so he decided to sail around Ephesus and to stop at a place called Miletus. And he wisely called for the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come to him so he could share some things with them that they could in turn apply to their leadership of that church that he loved so much. And so, because Paul knows being led by the Spirit, he's going into some difficulty. Paul believes this is the last time he will see these leaders face to face. And he's sharing some last words with them. Kind of the things that are foremost on his uh, heart and his mind. And this sermon is really, really, really powerful. We began studying the sermon he shared last week. And the first half of the sermon could be uh, summarized by the heading Paul's example. He shared with him his example of how he had lived Uh, before them and how he had set an example for them to follow Uh, but the second half of the sermon is really Paul's encouragement to the leaders to the church there in the city of Ephesus and this encouragement comes with some urgency notice what it says there in verse 25 Paul says now behold I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again so again this is his last shot he believes to speak and impart truth and wisdom to these leaders. And so he has an urgency in this message. And then look what it says down in verse 38. It says, being sorrowful, most of all, the the leaders were sorrowful. They were in tears because the word he had spoken, they would not see his face again. And so this sermon is really powerful because it's full of angst and emotion, and and Paul's heart is just on full display here in this text. And again, Paul is sharing some things that can encourage this church in Ephesus towards certain types of behaviors. He wants the church in Ephesus to be a church that remains healthy and vibrant and effective. So we can, of course, apply these principles of encouragement to our church. So we can be a church that, that is healthy and vibrant and Effective. So I want to walk you through the second half of Paul's message and show you some areas in which he encouraged the leaders and subsequently the church, of uh, the Christians in Ephesus. First of all, Paul encouraged them to be a church of sound doctrine. He encouraged them to be a church of sound doctrine. Look what it says there in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Verse 31, therefore... Be alert. And so he uses two different uh, phrases here. Be on guard, be alert. He's calling them to vigilance. As you look at the unfolding sermon, Paul is calling them to vigilance in the area of doctrine. He wanted them to be on guard against false teachers and false doctrine infiltrating the church so they could have a solid doctrinal theological foundation on which to build and they can continue to be an effective, vibrant, spirit-filled church. And so he's warning them to be vigilant in the area of doctrine. Now, what are some reasons for this vigilance? Why why is it such a big deal? Why does Paul want these leaders in Ephesus to be on guard? Well, There are a few reasons. First of all, the church is of great value to God. The church is of great value to God. Look what it says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, look at this, with his own blood. What is the price that Jesus paid for the church? He shed his precious blood. He died for our sins that we might be forgiven and might be reconciled to god and might be brought into this this family of faith called the church and so because jesus christ paid it all because he died on the cross for our sins and listen i purchased the church with my blood take care of it the church is precious to me i've heard people say before you know i'm into jesus but i'm not really into the church how does that square up with that verse? Jesus shed his blood for the church. The church is precious in God's sight. And so here's what he's saying. Because the church is so precious, be on guard. God doesn't want his bride. He doesn't want his bride to be affected and, and, and destroyed. He's saying be on guard. The church is of great value to God. Secondly, vigilance is the primary calling of a church leader. Look what he says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So Paul's saying, listen, that's why you're a leader. The Holy Spirit himself made you a leader so that you could watch over the flock. That's one of your primary callings as a leader to take care of the church. And so it's as if Paul's saying, hey, leaders, do your job, be vigilant, watch over the church. Now, it's interesting in this text, there are three different titles given to to church leaders. And the three titles all refer to the same office. The first title is Elder. Look in verse 17 of chapter 20. Verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. That word elders is the Greek word presbyteros, is where we get the word Presbyterian from. And it speaks of the spiritual maturity of the leaders of the church. They are often throughout the New Testament called elders. And he says here he called the elders of the church. That's one word used for the role of church leadership. The second role is the word overseer. Look in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you Overseers. That word is the word "episkopos" in the Greek language, it's where we get the word "Episcopalian" from. So you see that some denominations use Greek words for leadership as a way to uh, name their uh, their their group. And so this is the word "episkopos," and the word "overseer" in the Greek language carries with the idea that the church leaders are to make sure the church is functioning properly, to make sure the ch- church is running as it is supposed to run. They are providing oversight to the overall function of the family of faith. But there's a third word, a third title that's used for church leaders here in this text. Look what it says in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God. Now that, that word, uh, phrase to care for, is the Greek word poimen. It's literally the word shepherd. To shepherd The church of God. That's the the verb form of the title pastor. Pastor or shepherd. And I love that designation of a church leader. So elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, all refer to the same office uh, of leadership, the pastoral office in a church. Uh, People ask me occasionally, Hey, we're coming to Longview Point and we want to know what we should call you. What what should we call you? Uh, And people have different backgrounds in church they call their pastors different things uh, some people say should I call you brother Wade and brother Wade is is very appropriate I'm, I'm fine many of you call me brother Wade and that is uh, that that's fine some people say can I call you Wade absolutely if you want to call me Wade you can call me Wade I answer to that uh, that's my name and, and and so you can you can call me Wade or, or say should I call you preacher if you want to call me preacher that's what I do so you can you can call me preacher and um, um, don't call me doctor. The only one that I won't call me doctor is Claire. Um, uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dr. Wade. Can I get your dinner? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's ba- a bad joke. A bad joke. A bad joke. But my. But listen. My my my. The favorite way I like to be referred to, if I had to choose, I, I love the phrase Pastor Wade because I love that picture of of a pastor. Shepherding his flock, and I don't know if you notice or not, but we're very intentional in using that word with our ministerial staff members. For example, um, we don't call our, um, our our director of the children's area a children's minister. We call. Uh, Kevin, our pastor to families with children. We call Derek our pastor to families with students. We call Jason our missions pastor, uh, Travis our worships pastor, Frank our associate pastor, and so on and so forth. We, we're very intentional in using the word pastor because it's a biblical term. It's, it's used of those who are to, to watch over the flock of God. And I, I think that's a very uh, fitting designation for a church leader. And notice here the church is called a flock. Uh, they're a flock, and the pastors are to be like shepherds watching over the flock, protecting them from evil. And so, why should we be vigilant? Because the church is of great value to God, and, and that's what church leaders should do. We should lead the way in being vigilant, watching out for false teaching. But let me just share with you quickly some areas of vigilance uh, that we see here in our text, some areas of vigilance. First of all, there are dangers within our own hearts. Dangers within our own hearts. Look what it says In verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Notice he said, pay attention to yourselves and to the flock. In other words, the first area of concern for leadership and really for your life as well is our own hearts. Before we can begin to look at what other people are doing, we need to look inside of our own lives and make sure that our hearts are hearts of integrity and that we are walking with God and that we are standing in the truth. Be aware of your own heart. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul is writing to Timothy, who was, by the way, one of the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And he says to Timothy, he says, pay attention to yourself and your teaching. Not just your teaching, but to yourself. Because if you're teaching one thing, but your life doesn't line up with it, you can undermine your credibility as a leader. So pay attention to your own heart. That's what Paul said to Timothy. That's what Paul's saying to these leaders here in Acts 20. Pay attention to your own hearts. Your own hearts, if you're not careful, can be led astray. Your own hearts can drift towards error. You need to make sure that you're in the truth. You need to make sure you're walking with Jesus Christ. There are dangers within our own hearts if we are not on guard and vigilant. There are also dangers from without. Look what he says in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Again, he's using the metaphor of the church being a flock of sheep. And we know that one of the main predators for sheep uh, are are wolves. And he's saying, when I leave, I know that there are going to be some false teachers that want to come and bring their false teaching with them and lead people astray. And he pulls no punches. False teachers are wolves. As a matter of fact there, he calls them savage or fierce wolves. Be on guard against false teachers that would seek to come against the flock of God. They're dangers from without. I read this quote this past week and it, it really sent chills up my spine. I never thought of it in these terms, but just think of this with me. R. Kent Hughes writes, heretics, cults, Secularists and other spiritual enemies attack healthy churches, not weaken and obsolete ones. Why would Satan waste his time on a dying church? He'll just let them die, right? But when you see a church that is seeking to take the gospel across the street and around the world to push back the darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan loves to destroy a church like that. He loves to come against it with false teachers to lead people astray, to lead people away from a, a solid doctrinal foundation. And he's very good at it. And the reason we need to be vigilant, be alert, be on guard, is because there's false teaching everywhere. Everywhere. It's on TV, it's on the radio, it's on the internet, it's in bookstores, it's in Christian bookstores. There's false teaching everywhere. Can I just remind you, that just because someone calls himself a pastor doesn't mean they're a man of God. And just because there's a building and there's a sign out front by the road that has church written on the sign doesn't mean that it's a a church. And just because someone is talking to you about the Bible doesn't mean they're doctrinally sound. People can use the Bible and handle it wrongly. Over in 2 Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself being influenced by those who are twisting Scripture and teaching things that are wrong. So we've got to be on guard. There are dangers from without the dangers are ever. We've got to know the truth and we've got to test everything by the truth of the word of God. There's a third area of vigilance. There are dangers from within the church. Look in verse 30. He says there are going to be fierce wolves that will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But also from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things... To draw away the disciples after them. That's interesting, isn't it? One of Satan's favorite strategies is to plant right in the middle of a body of believers a false teacher. That is likable and engaging and begins to curry influence with a group of people. And once they have that influence, that relationship, then they begin to teach things that are antithetical to the word of God. And they begin to, in a very subtle way, begin to lead people away from the truth. So we've got to be on guard uh, from those rising up among our church we hear something that doesn't sound right, we need to, to seek clarification and we need to test everything by the word of God. And sometimes churches got to make some very hard decisions and say things like, if that's where you're headed with your beliefs, you can't lead a connect group anymore. Or you can't stand before a group of people anymore and, and teach. And we can't allow you to have this influence in the life of the church because you are leading people astray. Those, those kind of conversations aren't pleasant But God calls us to be on guard from false teaching rising up within the church. That's what he says, right? We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard. There have been some very healthy churches that were growing and going and making a difference for the kingdom. But false teaching rose up in the midst of that church and the church either died or split and was destroyed. We've got to be on guard. Now, here's the difficult thing. If you have a household cleaning product, something that's dangerous for you to ingest, there's there's warning signs, right? Danger, skull and crossbones. I mean, you see things, you know, hey, this is something that's very dangerous for me. Listen to me. False teachers don't walk around with skulls and crossbones on their forehead. Sometimes I wish they would. That'd be very helpful. But they don't. Most of the time, false teachers are just are just engaging, charismatic, likable folks that begin to gain influence and begin to lead people astray. So we must test everything, everything, everything by the Word of God. Paul encouraged them to be a church of sound doctor. Hey, let me tell you this. If you look through church history, even recent church history, every church that walks away From the moorings of Scripture, from from holding to the authority of the Word of God, loses their evangelistic effectiveness. If you walk away from the Bible, you'll you'll stop preaching the gospel. Denominations in our land that were once strong and vibrant and seeing people saved and the kingdom was expanded, that denomination, they walked away from the authority of Scripture. And now they're dying. They're shriveling up. They're they're not reaching out with the gospel because they don't believe the gospel anymore. They were led away by false teachers. We must be vigilant. That's what God calls us to. Paul also encourages them to be a church of spiritual maturity. Not just sound doctrine, but spiritual maturity. Verse 32 is a gem of a verse. I've read Acts 20 many, many times. And for some reason this past week as I was studying this chapter, verse 32 just leapt off the page. You ever been reading your Bible and a verse just leaps off the page? I mean, it just shines really brightly. And I read verse 32 and I thought, what an awesome verse. I mean, it's just a, a jewel of a verse right here embedded in this sermon Paul's preaching. Verse 32, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, that's the word of God, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul was saying, I'm about to leave. I'll no longer be with you face to face. I won't have that daily FaceTime with you, that daily influence with you, but I trust God. And I am in prayer placing you in his hands because I know he's able to do a work in you to build you up. And he does it, he says, by the word of his grace. You might say that God is the agent of transformation, And His Word is the instrument of transformation. God changes our lives and the primary instrument He uses, hear me, is the Bible. That's how God does it. That's how God works. And so if you don't avail yourself to God working through His Word in your life consistently, you're not going to mature. It's just not going to happen. If you go home today and put your Bible on a shelf somewhere and don't touch it again until next Sunday morning, guess what? You won't be any further down the road spiritually than you were when you left the church today. You will not grow apart from availing yourself to God's transformation which he affects through his word. I I was laughing with somebody this past week. uh, in In a counseling situation, basically it always comes back to You need to read your Bible. (laughs) You name it. I mean, you name the issue, right? Get back to the Word. Let the Word guide you, and the Word will will be a, a lamp into your feet and a light into your path and will do a convicting work in your life to change you because God works through the instrumentality of His Word. And there are two ways here in this verse. First of all, the Word of God is the primary instrument God uses to edify us. The word edify means to build up. Look what he says there. In verse 28, let me verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. God is able through his word to build you up, to mature you, to help you to grow in your walk with him. His word is used to edify. Also, the word of God is the primary instrument that God uses to enrich us. Look what he says. This is fascinating. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace... Which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You know what he's saying there? This is fascinating. He's saying, when you read the Bible and God is working through his word in your life, God begins to show you how great it is to be saved. He begins to help you to understand your inheritance, He begins to help you to understand. All the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. Over in Ephesians 1-3, the Bible says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, if you are a believer, if you've been born again, if you've been saved, every spiritual blessing that is available is yours. And we don't understand those blessings, do we? we don't live in light of those blessings. So the Word of God begins to help us to understand, listen, how great it is to be saved. So let's just say that you had a... A rich relative, and they passed away, and a lawyer called you and said, "Your uh, your wealthy relative has left you an inheritance." You can say that's great, but you want to know the details, wouldn't you? Are we talking about land? Are we talking about money? Are we talking about what are we talking about here? Let me read the document, right? I mean, you would be interested in that, right? Well, listen to me. If you're saved, God has a wonderful inheritance for you in this life and in the life to come. And we only begin to grasp those blessings as we are in the Word of God. The Word of God is the instrument God uses to enrich us, to help us to understand how great it is to be saved. See, some of you have gotten over your salvation. Some of you aren't excited about being saved anymore because you've, got, you've, you've, quit, you've, you've quit reading the Word. And you're not being enriched. You're not learning more and more about your inheritance in Christ. And when it comes to being born again, you just yawn. You're not excited anymore. Get in the Word, and the Word will be a daily reminder to you that it is good to be saved. It is good to know Jesus. It is good to have your sins washed away. It is good to have hope. It's good to have meaning. It's good to have peace. It's good to have joy. And the Word will remind you of that. And so, the Word of God helps us to understand what we have in Christ, and it prepares us for what we will have in eternity. F.F. Bruce writes this Now he was leaving them, they could no longer count on his personal presence for pastoral guidance and wise instruction. But though Paul might go, God was with them still, and so was God's word, which they had received, the word that communicated his redeeming and sanctifying grace. And so here's the application. You ready? It's deep. Read your Bible. Got that? Read it systematically. Make sure you have a Bible reading plan and you're systematically reading through the entire counsel of God's word and God will work through that instrumentality to edify you and to enrich you. There's another encouragement here. He's encouraged them to sound doctrine and spiritual maturity, but third, he encourages them to selflessness. Look what the Bible says in verse 33. Paul says, "...I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel." You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's what Paul's saying. When I was with you, I did not demand money. Now, you need to understand in the first century that religious teachers would ride into town all the time. And a lot of these guys were, were corrupt. They were all about money. They were fleecing people. And they would come in and gather a following, and and then they would take their money and run. And Paul's saying, when I was with you in Ephesus, I, I lived with integrity. I wasn't demanding money from you. I worked with my own hands. We know from the Bible that Paul was a tent maker. He made tents and earned income. But here's what's interesting. He says, I earned income so I could help others. I worked hard with my own hands so I could help the weak. Isn't that what he says here? He's reminding them, by his example, that he lived a selfless life. Which leads us to this conclusion, all of us in this room. We all have to choose whether the primary orientation of our lives is self or others. Don't miss that. We all have to choose whether the primary orientation of our lives is self or others heard a pastor say one time that when he died on his tombstone all he wanted was one word he wanted the word others on his tombstone because he wanted to live his life not for self but for others And we've all got to make that decision is my life going to center around me or am I going to be a vessel in the hands of God through whom he can work and touch others it's a big decision isn't it I mean, you're talking about the trajectory of your life. Will it be self or others? You say, wait, I struggle. I struggle with my stuff and wanting more stuff and enjoying my stuff and thinking that stuff's going to make me happy. I I just, wait, I deal with materialism, like all of us do in this room, by the way. Right? We live in America. Compared to 75% of the world, you are filthy rich. We all struggle with materialism. So how do we get to this place where it's not about us, it's about others? He gives us some insight in this text. Giving is the antidote to selfishness. Look what he says. He says, In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now here's what's interesting that quote is not found in the Gospels. This is something Jesus said that's not recorded by the Gospel writers. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that, Paul, that Jesus said that. And Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, if we will learn to be givers, then we will see the grip of materialism losing its hold on our lives and hearts. But you've got to be a giver. You've got to be intentional. Johnny Hunt's a pastor that I respect and enjoy listening to. Johnny Hunt is famously quoted as saying, You are never more like Jesus than when you give. Think about that. I mean, Jesus came to earth to give, right? He, he went to the cross to give. And we're never more like Jesus than when we give. It's always more blessed to give than to receive. That's selflessness there's a fourth encouragement we'll be through. There's an encouragement towards sound doctrine. Uh, There's an encouragement towards spiritual maturity. Encouragement towards selflessness. But last, encouragement towards surrender. Surrender. We find this in the last part of this passage. Paul's done with the sermon, but Paul doesn't, doesn't tell them to surrender. He exemplifies it. He lives it out before them. He exemplifies surrender in three acts. I want to show you from this last little paragraph three acts of surrender, total surrender. The first one is bowing. Look what it says there in verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down. He knelt down. Now, I understand that there are many ways to pray. The Bible gives us different postures for prayer. And the Bible gives us great freedom in prayer. You can pray standing up. You can pray walking down the road. You can pray in your car, on your commute to work. You can pray at your dining room table. You can pray in your easy chair. You can pray laying in your bed at night. They're all different ways to pray. But there's something significant about the posture of bowing. When you actually bow down and get on your knees, you are signaling by your posture surrender. You're my king. You're my Lord. I'm your servant. I'm I'm bowing before you in recognition that you call the shots, Lord. That's what bowing communicates to our hearts and to our minds. I understand that some may not be physically able to bow or to bow for longer periods of time. But if that's the case, you just, just say to the Lord, I'm bowing my heart right now. I'm bowing my heart. But there's something significant about bowing your knees before the Lord. And as Paul Finishes the sermon. He's commending them to the grace of God, which is able to build them up. He's getting ready to continue on his journey of, of danger and trouble he knew was coming. He what? He bows down. He bows. A posture of surrender. Can I just encourage you to build into your Christian life bowing, getting on your knees before the Lord? I'm telling you, it's spiritually therapeutic to bow. It's good for your heart, it's good for your mind, it's good for your soul. It indicates something very important when you go to God in prayer, bowing. The second act of total surrender is prayer. Verse 36, it says, When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Why does Paul pray? Because Paul knows how much he needs the Lord. He knows how much the church needs the Lord. You see, prayer is an expression of dependence. And prayerlessness is an expression of self-sufficiency. Now I want you to hear me carefully. When you don't pray about your life, you know what you're saying to God? Hey God, I got this. I can handle it, my own strength, my own wisdom. I'll I'll figure it out. I'll manage. I got this, God. I don't need your help. Now, you, you would say, I would never say that to God. Well, that's what you say when you don't pray. Right? When you don't pray, you're saying, God, I got this. But when you pray, when you take the needs of life and the struggles of life and your future and, and all of that, and you place it in God's hands, you are saying, God, I desperately need you. Prayer is an expression, the ultimate expression of dependence. At the end of our service this morning, we're going to sing the song, I Need You. I Need You. Prayer is a way to communicate how. Much you need God. Paul knew what was coming. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him very clearly. We talked about this last week that when he got to Jerusalem, he'd be imprisoned. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew it was going to be hard on the church in Ephesus when he left. He knew savage wolves would come among them. He knew they were going to be under attack. And so, in desperation, Paul prepares to say his final goodbye. What does he do? He bows down and he prays. But there's a third act of total surrender. And it's obedience. Obedience. It's interesting to see what happens when he gets up off of his knees. Look in verse 37. There is much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. That was cultural. People kissed a lot back in those days, you know, maybe on the cheek. And you still go in areas in the world today where people, they'll kiss you on the cheek when you enter a new area. Even, you know, men will kiss men on the cheek. And to be honest with you, that's a little weird for me. And, 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 and we don't do that here. So don't kiss me. Only, listen, the only lips I want on my cheek are Claire's. All right? But here they kiss, and it just speaks of their emotion. All right, They're they're weeping, they're embracing, and they kiss him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, look at this, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. What does Paul do after he prays? He gets up off of his knees, and he moves forward in obedience. He knew what was coming, but he willingly got on the boat, didn't he? Headed towards certain imprisonment. Headed towards certain affliction. Paul obeyed. And obedience can be scary and it can be hard. But if we trust God, we will follow him wherever he leads. Obedience is the ultimate expression, isn't it, of surrender? God, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. No matter what happens, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus. Where's that resolve in the church today? Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Where has that resolve gone? To obey in surrender. God, it's, it's not my life, it's your life. I'll do what you call me to do because I trust you. One of my favorite. Biographies is called To the Golden Shore. It's about Adoniram Judson. In the early 1800s, he was one of the first Baptist missionaries to leave North America and go overseas. He went to India and then on to Burma. Great hero of the faith. What's interesting is how he proposed to his wife, Anne Hasseltine. His letter is, is filled with emotion. And he writes to her asking her for her hand in marriage. Because he knew that if she said yes, he knew what was waiting for his beloved. He knew that she would probably encounter great difficulties because she would go with him to the other side of the world. As a matter of fact, Adonai and Justin also wrote a letter to Anne Hasseltine's father. And he said to her, he said to his, her father, Are you willing to give your daughter's hand to me in marriage, knowing you'll probably never see her again until heaven? Can you imagine going to a potential father in law with that? But then he writes to Anne Hasseltine, and in, in that letter, he includes some words of anticipation, he includes some poetic elements to the letter. Here's the, here's the verses that he, he writes. By foreign hands, thy dying eyes were closed. By foreign hands, thy decent limbs composed. By foreign hands, thy humble grave adorned. You know what he's saying to the woman he wants to marry? If you marry me and we leave and go to Burma, probably foreign hands are going to lay you to rest. You're going to die over there. You'll never see your family again. You'll never enjoy the comforts of North America again. You're going to die on the other side of the world if you say yes. Which, by the way, is exactly what happened. Anne Hasseltine married Adonai Justin and died in Burma. So what is that? That is total surrender. Total surrender. Obedience even in the face of of anticipated hardship. And Paul exemplifies this surrender by getting up off of his knees and getting onto the boat that would take him into the heart of danger and trouble. What about you? If you knew your obedience was going to take you into difficulty, would you go? Would you surrender all? And so Paul encourages the leaders so that they could encourage the church in Ephesus because he wanted that church to be vibrant and effective and healthy. And by application, we can take these principles and apply them to our church so we can be vibrant and, and healthy and alive for the glory of God. So here's the point. I want to sum this up for you. And by the way, the point that I'm about to give you is not the final point because I, I rewrote it. So I've got the point, then I've got another point, all right? Let me give you the point that's on your notes for you OCD folks that want the blank filled in, okay? We need encouragement to constantly strive to be a healthy body of believers. We need encouragement to constantly strive to be a healthy body of believers. That's okay, but I rewrote it this weekend because I like this better. Here's the new point. Write this down. You ready? And I think they put it up on the screen. We need to be on guard and in the Word so that we can impact others for the glory of God. I like that better. I think that sums up this sermon. We need to be on guard and in the Word so that we can impact others for the glory of God. That's what this sermon is about, this passage is about, and this is how we want God to work in our midst. Vigilant, in the Word of God, selfless, so that God's glory will shine brightly in our church as His kingdom expands